American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. During the Cold War, Americans liked to juxtapose the free enterprise of the United States against the repressive communist planned economy of the Soviets. And yet in 1967, the famed economist John Kenneth Galbraith wrote that, quote, we have an economic system which, whatever its formal ideological billing, is in substantial part a planned economy. What did he mean by this? He meant that despite the fact we have competition between corporations, within the corporation itself, these large, sprawling post-war corporations, there was planning. Planning that minimized the relationship with markets. Supply chains were brought inside, labor was not contracted, capital was not contracted, they relied on their own retained earnings. And because of this, you could think of every corporation as its own mini-command economy. In Galbraith's model, big businesses were planned and efficient. They contained all the functions of the market. And today we think of our economy as based on the market. The market's at the center, market relationships, small, lean businesses. But then it was the big corporation that was at the center. And this economy was a planned economy, planned by the corporations. And the fall of that model of the corporation, of big corporations at the center of the economy was the end of planning, corporate long-term planning. And that fall happened 20 years before the fall of the Soviet Union. At the center of this fall was a new form of the corporation, something called a conglomerate that arose after World War II, especially in the late 1950s and early 1960s. A conglomerate was different than these older, larger forms of the corporation that focused on vertical integration. The conglomerate owned a succession of businesses in different industries, entirely unrelated. For instance, LTV, a gigantic corporation, conglomerate corporation of the late 1960s, owned missiles, basketballs, packaged meat, all manner of things, things that had no relationship to one another. And because they had no relationship to one another, they were not a trust. They were not a monopoly. They were big without having market power. And in so doing so, they were a totally new form of organization. And in understanding the rise of the conglomerate, we can also understand the rise of a particular critique of this planned, large, big corporate economy that begins to arise in the 60s and 70s and leads to our contemporary view of the corporation. Perhaps more than any other man, the rise and fall of James Ling exemplifies the new dominance of the conglomerate in post-war America. Like many conglomerators, he came from Texas, in that oil and defense-rich state. And also, like many other conglomerators, he discovered something that had been lost since the 1920s, the ability of corporate finance to transform how the economy works. James Ling is an unexpected success story. Orphaned as a teenager, growing up in Texas and Louisiana, he dropped out of school at age 15 and wandered around during the Great Depression, eventually finding work in Dallas. He found a job as an apprentice electrician and started a family. And during World War II, he worked nights at Lockheed, a prominent aerospace company, becoming a master electrician, which allowed him, in 1947, to start his own electrical contracting company. 
Now, his company rode the post-war boom in Dallas, and it grew, like many small businesses did. And he found himself at the head of a prosperous contracting company, servicing all those defense industries in Dallas. His newfound wealth brought him into the world of the country club of Dallas society, where he met all those Texas wheelers and dealers, the oil men who played fast and loose with the rules in a way that nobody in New York would ever do. And it was there he discovered the magic of corporate finance. At this country club, he learned about the difference between a sole proprietorship, his own small business, and a corporation. Now at the time, the highest marginal tax rate for a small, for a small business and for an individual in America was 91%. So that for every dollar that he earned, 91 cents went to the government. In contrast, the highest corporate tax rate was 52%. Immediately, he could incorporate and save half of his money. This was a stunning revelation. He also found out that by selling stocks, he could get more money and expand his business. Now, he was a small electrician in Dallas, and so he didn't have access to all the fancy pants stuff of Wall Street investment banks. So what does he do? He goes door to door selling stocks for his company. He opens a booth at the state fair. And despite how crazy this sounds, he manages to raise $800,000. Ling goes on a buying spree. He buys up his competitors. He buys up all these other contractors in Dallas. And eventually he does make connections with New York investment banks, White Weld. And using these newfound connections, he realizes he can not just only issue stock, but bonds. And so what he begins to do is that when he buys a company, he then issues debt against its assets, issues bonds, and uses that money to repay what he had already borrowed. He then uses that money to buy additional companies. And so in this process, he very quickly learns that he can borrow money on Wall Street and buy companies and quickly expand his business. He eventually runs out of electrical contracting companies and begins to buy in other areas. He quickly becomes a conglomerate. By 1962, his ambitions were growing larger and larger. He decamps from his initial small investment house to the much larger Lehman Brothers. And using Lehman Brothers' vast connections with capital markets and investors, he manages to get enough money to buy one of the largest aerospace companies in America, Chance Vought. And he renames his company Ling Temco Vought, LTV. James Ling was heralded as a managerial genius, but he was not alone. Alongside other conglomerates like Charles Tex Thornton and Charles Litton of Textron and Litton Industries, respectively, he was able to take any business and make it more profitable. This is the essence of the conglomerate, the belief that managerial science would reign supreme and be able to bring order to any business, regardless of what they made. Ling was then on a new buying spree through the mid-1960s, and it seemed like the conglomerates like LTV or Litton would grow forever. This all came to an end in 1968. For more information, go to edX.org and look for American Capitalism, A History, with Lewis Hyman and Edward Baptist. Or go to facebook.com slash American Capitalism MOOC. This podcast has been brought to you by Cornell X from Cornell University. Mm -hmm.